Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can do to live a better life. If times get tough, we they don't. Today is June 21st, uh, June 24th, June 21st, June 24th, 2013, and this is episode 1155 of the Survival Podcast, and it is Monday, I'm pretty sure of that. And uh, that means it's time for your emails that you guys send to me every week. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of them do come in. Uh, the email address to reach me is jack at the survivalpodcast.com. Uh, I want to say something about that because occasionally I get people I meet in real life and like, well, I was going to email you, but I figured that's not your real email. That's just for this. That's my real email. That's my real, that's the email that I would give my best friend. And that's how I view this audience most of it anyway as my friends. So that's my real email. Now there are some things you can do to make it more likely that I'm going to actually see your email. Uh, and if I'm, if it's going to be for this show that I'm actually going to screen it, uh, it doesn't mean it's going to get on, but I'm actually going to at least glance at it. And that is to use the words for Jack and the subject and only use one other word. So article for Jack, video for Jack, comment for Jack, question for Jack. You get it? If you do that, it's going to go get into the screening folder. The next thing you can do, if you send me an article, don't just send me a link. Send me one or two sentences that tells me why I should give a damn about the article, and then put a link to the article underneath it. If it's a question, phrase your question in one or two sentences, or a comment one or two sentences, and then put all the details below it. It's not me being a dick. It really isn't. It's me trying to help you help me so I can get through more emails and get more of your stuff on the air. Because if I have to spend five minutes on an email, and I get a hundred of them a day, that's 500 minutes a day. And I get more than a hundred of them a day. So think about the math there. I just five minutes an email, a hundred emails a day, it would be 8.3 hours a day just checking emails. I would never get the show done. I would never keep the homestead rocking. Uh, and that would just be screening for the show. So I've got to be able to screen an email in about 10 to 15 seconds and determine if it warrants more time. And I have a secondary and a tertiary folder and it kind of works its way down. To get through that initial screening, this is the way to do it. And the more people that do it, the more great content will get on the air. Because I know sometimes some of you send me great stuff, and if I'm in a hurry and I'm in a, in a rapid screen mode, it gets buried. Just wanted to let you know that. Before I get to your emails, though, for this week, and I do have some great stuff this week, uh, let's go ahead and uh, take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day number one today, Safe Castle Royal, the original survival podcast sponsor. How are they the original one? Well, they're the first one. First people that stepped up and said, Jack, we love what you're doing. We want to sponsor the show. They've been with us now for over four years. Four years as a sponsor in the podcast world. It doesn't happen anywhere else that I know of, but it happens here because, well, we do a good job for them and they do a good job for us. And we're a great team together, Vic and I. And uh, Vic, who's the owner over there, has actually stepped up and done something here that I don't think he does anywhere else in the world. He has a discount buyer's club. He sells it every day for 49 bucks. And it gives you discounts on all the great stuff that he sells every day. And it's one-time fee, and it's forever. A lifetime membership, uh, which is a great deal. And it, But if you're a member of My Support Brigade, you get that free. Now, My Support Brigade is 50 bucks a year. His membership is $49. That means your first year of MSB from that one um, benefit alone is a buck. So Vic is not just a great supplier, not just someone you should check, and not just someone you should make sure you're getting your discounts from if you're a member. 
uh, but a huge supporter of the audience and the community because that's that's great that he does that. And uh, if you want to learn more about that and you want to learn more about all the great stuff that Safe Castle has, just get on over to their website at safecastle.com. And if you go to prepared.pro, it will also take you to the same place because they're professionals at helping you prepare. So prepared.pro or safecastle.com. Next up today, bulkammo.com. Bulkammo.com is your source for the other precious metal copper jacketed lead they also let you complete the uh the tr what i call the triangle of gun ownership and gun effectiveness right and there's three things we need to be effective with a firearm we need a gun i mean that kind of you know sucks to be in a gunfight without a gun right so you need a gun or to like go out to shoot a deer and throw a bullet at it doesn't work so we need a gun Then you got to have a trained operator. I don't care if you're in a gunfight, in, in a tactical situation, or trying to take a squirrel out of, tree, of a tree out of 100 yards with a scope 22. Either way, you've got to be proficient at your craft. Okay, But if you're proficient at your craft and you have a gun, you have a very expensive club or possibly something you can hawk for money if you don't have any ammo. So you got to have the ammo to go with it. And bulk ammo is your source to get all the common calibers in bulk at great pricing with incredibly fast shipping. The first time you order, they do have to do a verification. Make sure you, they get a copy of your ID and things like that. It's just the way the regs are. Once you're on file, you order, it's out the door. And even your first order will go remarkably fast. Check them out today. A lot of stuff that hasn't been in stock for a while is back in stock, and there's a lot of great stuff over at bulkammo.com. Next up, I want to remind you guys about TSP Mint. Um, the Sentinel coins, and I, I've got something kind of important to let you guys know. Um, Friday will be the last day for the limited edition Sentinels. These are the proofs in the uh, in the cases uh, with my signature on them. Uh, we were going to do the first 1,500. We haven't sold that many. These are you know an expensive proof. They're selling at about 30 bucks over spot per coin. Uh, I think we've we've done 250 of them or something like that, but. There was a screw-up with the cases. Uh, one of Rob's employees, who um, shall remain nameless but recently left, ordered the cases with a freaking typo and signed off on delivery. And we ended up having to eat a few thousand dollars between uh, Rob and myself for the error, because that's what you do, and reorder new ones. We've ordered 500, uh, so we're probably only going to allow 500 of these things to ever be sold at this point. So... You have about five days, and there's only a few hundred more that can even be ordered. Those of you that have ordered one or five, because you can order up to five, uh, yours will be shipping uh, probably the beginning of next week once we're done with this uh, limited run on them. Uh, we do have the new cases coming in. Um, I'm sorry there was a screw-up, but we fixed it, and we fixed it out of our own pocket because we committed to it. Rob said, you know, do you think we should maybe offer them something else? And I'm like, no, we should just eat it and, and give them what we promised them. So that beautiful case is coming with them. Uh, there will probably only ever be 500 of these things ever made. Now, what doesn't sell, we may lay up someday and bring them back with that limited edition of 500. That's so many cases we ordered to fix the screw-up. Uh, I'm not committing to only being 500, but it looks like that's what's going to happen if we end this and we don't go over 500. We'll mint the remainders. Um, let, there's 309 been made up till now, so there's a couple hundred there. Um, we will make more if they get ordered this week, I'll, I'll tell you that. Um, the beauty of this coin is that it is a very limited edition. In any event, there'll be 1,500 maximum. Um, And it is selling at a pretty good premium, but the display case with it is gorgeous. This would make a gorgeous Christmas gift, folks. This really would. This would be something to buy now for that person you can never figure out what to buy for at Christmas time. 
And what makes this an outstanding value right now is the current silver spot price is only 19 bucks. So that's putting the price down quite a bit. Uh, that's, that's making this a much more affordable premium piece. Check it out today. I'll put a link in today's show notes so you can link to it. I know, again, I've said this before, a, a proof limited edition coin that's selling at a premium over spot is not something everybody's going to buy. It's not right for everybody. People that just want to stack silver, that's not what this is about. This is an affinity piece. This is a messaging piece, and it's a limited edition piece. And you should think about it as an investment as well, though, because it is something that once it's gone, it's gone. Um, the Sentinel will still be here after the proof is gone. And these limited edition coins tend to do quite well on eBay once the runs shut down on them, and they're not available any longer. Um, so with something like this, with silver being at a, a really good value in of itself right now, this is a great time to jump on an opportunity like this. So wanted to let you guys know that. Last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. If you do that, you'll get exclusive content available only to members. You'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. And if you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, first responder like a paramedic or firefighter or anything like that, if you email me, jackatthesurvivalpodcast.com, with service discount in the subject line before you join, not after you join, I'll send you a discount code so that when you do join, you can get an even better deal. There's a discount for first responders, law enforcement officers, Peace Corps volunteers, etc. All right, with that, let's go ahead and get into uh, your first email to me today. This comes from Robert, Robert in Michigan. He says, I was reading an article that mentioned potting as a means of food preservation. All I know is it uses clarified butter. That is one thing it could use, by the way. What is potting? What is clarified butter? And how long does this form of preservation last? Clarified butter, let's start out with that because it's a pretty cool thing to cook with, if nothing else. You melt butter. And you'll see this like a solid and a, and a clear, a hazy and a clear separation in the butter. If you melt it slowly, don't scorch it and burn it. And you, as you let it begin to, to cool down, the, the, the one will kind of stratify to the bottom, the other to the top. And you'll be able to scrape the, the, the colored, the hazy looking solids off the top. And you're left what, with clarified butter or ghee is another name for it because in Indian cooking they use a lot of it and call it ghee, uh, or you call drawn butter. So when you, a lot of times you go to a seafood restaurant and they bring you a little cup of butter to dip your shrimps in or whatever and it's just nice and clear and golden, that's what that is. So that's what clarified butter is. Potting. Um, most of what you would eat that you would call something that's been potted today is pretty gnarly stuff. It's that stuff like deviled ham or whatever, potted meat products, you know. Uh, pate is also a potted meat product, but these things today are usually canned. Potting goes back to days when maybe it wasn't so easy to can stuff. <laughs> um, it's not something I recommend you do. But the way that you pot meat is you cook meat, And you cook it really, really good. You cook the shit out of it. And you put it down into an earthenware crock. So basically a, a big you know, earthenware crock. And then you press it. You smash it to, to just push as much. It, so there's no oxygen left in it. So it's just a, like a mushed paste, like pate or pot, you know, deviled ham or potted meat. right? So that's how it ends up in that texture. Um, but then what they would do, they put it into the crock. When it, the crock's hot, the meat's hot, so hopefully any bad things are killed. 
And then you would cover it with hot fat. So that could be clarified butter. And you'd want to use clarified butter for this. Or lard. Uh, or goose fat. Or anything like that. Big thick layer of it. And then that fat layer would prevent oxygen and bacteria and other things from getting down into the meat. And this worked, but it's not 100%. It's nowhere near as reliable, let's say, as getting a pressure canner and just pressure canning meat, which to me makes a better tasting product anyway. Um, you know, they do the duck confit now, which is the, basically the duck legs in the duck fat preserved that way, and, and that, that works fairly well. Um, there's potted shrimp, pate is another form of potting. Again, um, this is something that was very popular in Britain. And, um, the problem is if you don't get it a hundred percent right, you're going to end up with bacterial growth in, uh, the pot. Even if you get most of the oxygen out, you can get some anaerobic bacterial issues if everything hasn't been perfectly, you know, heated to a point where you've killed everything, basically the, both, both the pot And the meat must have been heated to a temperature and nothing that could cause the um, contamination to reoccur introduced until after that layer of hot fat was poured and congealed and hard. So this would be something, I guess, if you uh, ever if we ever find ourselves in that long-term grid-down scenario that may need to be revived. But there's a lot better methods for doing this. This would also be something that needs to be stored in a... Uh, a cool area like a basement or a climate-controlled room or something like that. This would not be something that you could leave out in a hot barn and and you know not that you should do that with canned food, but if you had a, a few cans of uh, tomatoes out in a hot barn for a couple of days, it probably wouldn't be a problem. With this, it, it much more likely to be the case. So that's what potting is, and uh, it's it's an ancient method of food preservation. It does work, but It's probably not something I would advise today. And again, I don't think that the uh, that the end product is sufficiently good enough to want to do it unless you had to do it. Uh, very, very much a British thing. This was a British uh, food preservation technique. Um, when canning came around with jars, as we talked about last week, um, it, it kind of went away. And not in the way a lot of things do. It was just this is a much better, much safer Uh, solution. So if you want to preserve meat, I'd recommend you get yourself an all-American pressure canner and get familiar with pressure canning and uh, start canning your meat that way and, and you'll be better off. You, you look into smoking, look into pickling, look into drying, dehydrating, biltonging, ev anything uh, is probably better uh, than, uh, than potting. Okay, this next one's interesting and it's a look into the psychology of the average unprepared American. Uh, this comes from Brian, uh, I assume in Michigan, uh, Minnesota, I mean, uh, Twin Cities, Minneapolis-St. Paul, right? Okay, so Jack, the Twin Cities here just had one of the largest power outages on record, 505,000 people without power. I thought you might find this link interesting, the comments on Excel Minnesota's Facebook page. So there's a link to their page. Uh, there's a lot of people praising Excel for fixing what they have. Others are disgusted. I took my perishable food and headed to my parents in the north, I certainly should have been more prepared, but I got my power back Saturday afternoon, and I'm doing okay. I made a list of improvements I need to do. It's a good thing. My learning experience was this mundane. I asked my sister, what would happen if this was winter? She said, we don't get storms this bad in winter. I immediately thought of your caller from Alberta and the floods. Some examples. 
Thanks to the crew, your efforts are not in vain. Glad I took the advice on what to have prepared in case of an event like this. Time to light the grill, beer, uh, and soda on ice. Time to get to know the neighborhood. So that was how one somewhat prepared person said. Okay, so then this is the next person. So my neighborhood have power. My neighbors have power as of 9.30 p.m. last night. I don't, nor does the rest of our block. Maybe you should hand out some heavy-duty extension cords to those that have power so they can share with people you consider less important. This is a person that doesn't know how electricity works. That's what this is. This is a person that doesn't understand how electricity works and that there's different portions of a grid that can be brought back when other portions cannot because you'll kill the freaking people trying to fix the power. This is also a person that I think is not prepared. Maybe you should have some heavy-duty extension cords, some backup power, but if not, just some cords. Maybe you could talk to your neighbor then and maybe they would give you some power. I don't know. Uh, Yahoo, after 57 hours with no electricity, the power is on a couple of days ahead of promised restoration in Plymouth. Thank you, Excel Energy, and all the electrical specialists who came to help from surrounding states. Next one. Still waiting for power in SLP by the West End. There are no trees down on the lines. What is the deal? There's no trees down. Why don't I have power? This is another human being who does not understand how electricity works, that it has to come from somewhere. That just because you don't have trees down doesn't mean that wherever your power comes from, there ain't a great big-ass tree laying across it. And maybe, maybe there's a route to get power to you. But again, maybe we will light up the repair workers like a Christmas tree and kill them dead if we turn your power on just so you can have your power back. Um, another person says to that person, you may not have a tree in your yard, but did you ever think about how far your power line grid act, the power line grid actually is? It doesn't start nor end in your yard or the neighbors. It goes on endlessly, blocks and blocks and blocks, county to county, city to city, state to state. There are grids of the area that they can portion off, but the whole picture is massive and feels one to the next. Another person, thank you, Gene. People that think just because the damage isn't right in their yard uh, that it should be magically fixed. And then the person that said that, who asked either of you? Well, when you clearly demonstrated you didn't know how power worked. I guess they felt like maybe they could comment since Facebook is a public forum. Anyway, wondering where all the help and resources are. I know it's not a tornado or a major disaster, but being without power for a lot of people for three plus days is devastating. Loss of food is huge and huge is in capital letters, especially for the low income families. Is there anything or anyone out there helping Because of CUB or Rainbow gift card to replace all lost food would be amazing. They want a food card to replace their food because their power went out. Yep. Even food shelves or something. Even food shelves or something. <sighs> Folks, this is the state of the average American. And when people tell you that you are crazy or a loon for being a prepper, this is the alternative. The alternative is, well, my power's out. Somebody should give me a food card so I can get free food to replace the food that I lost because I wasn't prepared. This is how these people really think. This is why it makes sense to have a little generator, to have uh, a Stephen Harris-style uh, backup power battery system in the back of your truck and a toolbox or in your garage and be able to keep things running. Uh, you know, I really think that it makes a lot of sense if you own a pickup to really consider over the next few months making the investment and building a Steve Harris-style backup power system for your truck. 
the reason that even exists is because I conceived of it, I talked to Steve, and he put together the product uh, that shows you exactly how to build one. And you can get that uh, on DVD now. He's an instant download, but he also now ships a DVD in addition to it uh, for $34.95. And I'm telling you guys, man, it, this could have saved so many people so much grief. And if you don't have the time or the money or the resources to build a great big two or four battery backup system uh, that, that sits in, a, in a, a toolbox in the back of your truck, I understand. But you know what? Anybody can go out and put one or two batteries together with a simple uh, inverter and use the stuff that Steve has to at least be able to power basic devices and things like that. And then, you know, if nothing else, you can go out and you can get yourself one of the... Uh, The little ice makers off of Amazon.com for about 150 bucks, as Steve recommends. And that backup power system with that ice maker will keep your food cool in coolers. It's, it's easier with, with low power inputs to make ice than to try to cool air around food. And we have all the tools we need to be able to get through these outages. A little backup power system like that and even a simple you know, 2K inexpensive generator that can help top those batteries off when they get low, a good battery maintainer charger to go with that system, and that generator being able to run other things, man, I'm telling you. And, you know, if you live in the southern states where it gets really hot, it makes sense to step up in generator, get a portable air conditioner or two where you can have a couple rooms that are maintained comfortably for you. It, this is not hard stuff. It's the basic stuff. It's the stuff that the hardcore survivalist is going to live on tree bark says, that's nonsense. When the shit hits the fan and the zombies rise and the new world order comes, that generator... Well, until then... I'd like my home to be comfortable, please, and I'd like to not lose all my food, please, over a, a week of my power being out if I can avoid it uh, and live life good and positive. So here's an example of the unprepared complaining and wishing that they, too, could get a food card to replace their food that went bad because they had no preparation in place and it's somebody else's fault. In the words of Homer Simpson, this is everybody's fault but mine. So... There you go, folks. You're not crazy, and there's just one more example of being prepared. And this person's sister, I think it was said it was his sister, who he says, well, what would happen if this was in the winter? And she goes, we don't get storms this bad in the winter. It's Minnesota. I do believe there are people that call it Minnesota, right? Okay, snow is just when the temperature is cold enough that you don't get ice. When you get in that midpoint between snow and rain, you get that ice shit, and stuff comes down everywhere. The guy that sent this in, up your preps like you said you plan to, especially your winter preps with at least some portable heat or something like that, because you're right, if this happens in winter, it's a much bigger disaster Uh, in a place like Minnesota, where despite the claims about the polar bears all drowning, you know what, winter's still real, it still gets really damn cold, and people can get in a real harm's bad way in the, that cold weather. So uh, you're right about that. Thanks for sharing that little look at uh, human interaction with us. This next one's kind of cool. It comes from uh, Flippy Did It on the forum, also known as Nate. Um, he's got a PDF article that he put together that you may really want to download and take a look at. And for those of you that say, well, Jack, all this uh, permaculture stuff, I just roll my eyes when you talk about gardening and permaculture. Hey, you know what Nate did? Nate put together a way to take permaculture principles and things like swales uh, and high culture beds and some other things and basically make them into tactical structures. 
uh, combining army defensive tactics with permaculture. Uh, it's not something that's going to really be easy to explain on the air, so I'm just going to tell you that there'll be a link to the forum thread about it today, and from there you can get a link to where you can download the PDF. But um, it's definitely something to take a look at. And for those of you with an eye toward design in, in, as a career in your future, or as a business that are thinking about doing permaculture design but also want to work with preppers, um, I don't think everything's completely refined, but the ideas are sound and solid. Some of the stuff with the swelling and the way the graphics look is not reality uh, as far as... But I know he's probably not a graphic artist or anything, and swales are not angular, they're rounded, and you... But, yeah, you know, the, the principle will work. So uh, just don't put too much into the angles in the images and, and, and then just think about how the things fit together. The concept with large hugel beds and the formations that can be used for uh, a tactical team uh, defensive situation are awesome. Uh, and he's got a lot of other really great ideas in there. So check it out today. Uh, again, just go to the show notes. For today's episode, which is uh, episode 1155, and uh, you'll see forum uh, post on tactical permaculture is what I'm going to call the link. And uh, check out that PDF. I think it might give you a new way to look at permaculture. And the whole concept is not without precedent. If you think about World War II and the role that the hedgerows played in World War II, it, again, that's something that I don't think they were built for that purpose, but they sure served that purpose, and they made uh, the Allied invasion and liberation of Europe a lot more difficult than had they not been there. And from a defensive standpoint, that's what you want, difficulty for your enemy and an advantage for yourself. So check this uh, PDF out today. I can't recommend it enough. And I think it could be expanded into a lot of other ideas if we kind of crowdsource some concepts and ideas for it. So uh, if you have additional thoughts, uh, post in the forum uh, of the original thread about some other things that maybe could be added to this as a concept long term. All right, here's an interesting one. I think there's probably a lot of people feeling the same way in their 40s at, at this you know time of their life as they start to look out at the reality of where we're at. Hey, Jack, would it be advisable to go all in in order to be 100% debt-free? Up until about two years ago, I was doing routine, go to work, make the money, keep up with the Jones. I have a good job driving the big brown truck, and my wife is a 20-plus-year school teacher. We have bought and sold several homes on our way up and have been very lucky to not have any credit card debt along the way. Let me stop there. You're not lucky you don't have credit card debt. You are uh, smart that you don't have credit card debt. You didn't get lucky. You were smart. It's very important that you give yourself credit for that and that everybody else out there hear it that way too. You're not lucky if you don't have credit card debt. You're smart. All right? Say it one more time. You're not lucky if you don't have credit card debt. You're smart. Because you didn't get lucky and not get a credit card. You got smart and didn't get a credit card, didn't use a credit card anyway. Wait a minute. How'd you buy several houses without a credit card? Don't you? Okay, see, yeah. All right. Sounds like a good life, so what's the problem? Well, now that I'm in my mid-40s and look around, I realize I hate ha I hate living like this. When I walk through my 3,300-square-foot, looks like a magazine home with 10-foot ceilings and granite tops and big crown molding, I think to myself, what the hell do I need all this for? All I do is eat and sleep here. I hate the fact that when I walk around my 4-tenth-acre manicured lot, that's a pretty big lot, by the way. It's almost a half of an acre. But unfortunately, it goes on. Listen, when I walk around my 4-tenth-acre manicured lot, uh, that I can't have a garden and with chickens and goats running around because of the HOA. What really gets me is I can't occasionally drink beer, crank up Leonard Skinner, and piss off my back deck without fear of the police, uh, fear of the neighbors calling the police. 
Well, I found a downsized home about 10 miles out of town on 30 acres of land. The house is fairly new, and the land is 60% forested. There's a creek that runs all the way across the bottom of the land, originating from a spillway on a 75-acre pond across the road. If I can sell my current home at market value, I can take the equity I have in it, along with all my cash savings, and come out 100% debt-free. My concern is I won't be able to buy things like a tractor, outbuildings, fence for the animals, etc. without going into debt. I grew up on a farm as a kid, and I really want my young teenage daughter to learn and experience what, li what living, not just existing, is like. I've been prepping and listening to you for over two years now. I'm ready to step back into real freedom. My family's on board, so now is the time. Is it? But is it right to go all in? Thanks, Trotty. Um, I would not go all in. And let me explain to you why I would not go all in. I'm going to make up numbers here. I'm just going to make up numbers because I have no idea what the price of this property is. I have no idea what you're going to sell your house for. But let's just say the purchase price of the new property is 300 grand. Okay? It could be 200 grand. It could be 300 grand. It could be 500 grand. I don't care. The numbers still work out the same way intrinsically. So what that would mean is that when you take all your money out of your house and maybe you even have to sell a little under market value to get the deal done. But right now the market's doing pretty good on housing. There haven't been a lot of new homes built. Sounds like you've got a great home. It'll show well the kind of people that want it. There's buyers out there. Uh, the kind of people that buy a house like that, credit's not usually an issue for them. Okay, So you, let's say you can get the deal done. And when you take your money, you put it together, you can come up with three hundred grand. go down to the title office on closing day and go, here's my money, give me my freaking house. Okay, Now, now you're going to be broke. Right? You're going to have income, but you have no cash savings. Ant, wrong answer. That's that's wrong answer, first of all. If you're going to take a step like this and it's going to knock your savings back to 30 days worth of savings and you have retirement you could dip into and stuff like that and you're going to rebuild it, I'm okay with that. You know, We want a 90-day emergency fund, but I can, I can see how this works out with good income uh, and a two-income household, two pretty solid jobs. You're not likely to lose both of them at the same time, and you've got time to rebuild. That's fine. So the problem is, well then all the stuff I want to do, I'm going to have to go into debt for. So what kind of debt are you going to go into for that? Personal loan from a bank at 6% interest, a credit card loan at 9% interest, right? Um, got through your life this far without credit card bills, create them. Uh, or why not, then, if it was a $300,000 purchase, go in with a 50% down payment, finance $150,000 on a, on, a, on a loan today, The payment's ridiculously low. I don't even know that I would go that in on the purchase. I would probably not go 50. I'd probably go 20% down. And I'll tell you why. The cash is in front of you. You don't have to extract it back out with an equity loan at some point in the future if you change your mind. You have it as an operational budget. And the interest rate on a mortgage right now for a family like yours with good income, good track record, multiple home purchases, solid uh, credit rating is so stupid low that if you kept the money in a box, you would lose. The interest rate is ridiculously behind inflation right now. It's not going to stay that way for much longer. We're going to start seeing incremental ratcheting up of interest rates. The Fed is already talking about backing off this QE infinity shit. It's driving people like freaking out the European market. The European market is getting ready to shut down banks and screw over account holders. More on that in a bit. This nirvana of cheap-ass money to buy a house with is going to go away at some point. 
I don't know if we got a year left in it. I don't know if we got three months left in it. But if you want to make a move like this and a mortgage is part of it, there's, it's not going to get better. Okay, I'll put it to you that way. It might last, you know, the Fed said they'll hold interest rates down, but yet when you stop the easing, they have to come up at some point, right? So, and you got the market at an all-time high, and, you know, you can't just keep it there forever, but they said they will, but maybe they won't, right? I don't know if maybe they will. I don't know if maybe it will last another three or four years. But what I'm telling you is it's not going to go lower. There's never going to be a time where money's cheaper for a mortgage than it is right now. And because of that, And because of how inexpensive that money is, it's a good place to leverage some debt. Now, that doesn't mean go out and buy a million-dollar house. It doesn't mean that. But I don't think we're looking at that here. And if you do feel more comfortable going to 50% equity on the buy, I'm okay with that. And I'll tell you one thing it'll do for you. Your mortgage approval, like that. No, no they're not. I mean, you're going to short-form that mortgage. I'm dead serious. That's gonna, that's, there's going to be some rubber stamping going on by an underwriter with that mortgage. So I'm okay with that. But that would at least retain that capital for emergencies and slowly building out your homestead. The next thing I would say is go slow once you move. Start out with a little hen house and a little laying flock. And by the way, the fall's a great time to get your, get your chickens for laying. Um, they're not going to, you know, I'm talking about chicks here, right? They're going to have to grow into, but by the time you come into spring, they're already full grown. They're ready to start laying, uh, where a lot of times you get, people think, well, spring's a great time, but by the time the chickens really start to lay, you're coming into winter, they start backing off right away. So it's a good time to do that. If you want some goats, you know, you can do that, but take your time with fencing, take your time with infrastructure, use the money wisely. And what you'll end up with is a much lower house payment. If you do a 50% or even a 20% buy-in to a downsized home, right? So then take the differential in the house payments. So if you were paying X, now you're paying Y. Take X minus Y and put that into a budget, maybe half of it in a savings and half of it as a budget for improvements on the land. And I think that just is a better way to do this. I know that I'm, I'm really anti-debt, but... It depends on what the debt is on and what the purpose of the debt is. And, and I don't care what Dave Ramsey says. The interest rate does matter. The interest rate does matter. So if you were going to do $40,000 worth of improvements to the property and you could retain that cash and use it directly and, and negotiate with the guy that's going to do the work with you and say, you want me to pay you cash? I'll pay you cash. And when he goes, well, what do you mean a check? You go, I'll pay you $100 bills. He might do the work for a little less money. You see what I'm saying? Right, you have that leverage and that power then, and the forty thousand that's rolled into the mortgage is carrying an interest rate today of I, I don't know what interest rates are. Um, it looks like what I said about rates going up has already happened. I haven't been paying attention this month on this, but uh, we're up to like four six four five. Um, that changes things a little bit, but not a lot. That's still a smoking rate. I think we got two point eight. We bought it about the bottom of the market. It was ridiculous. Uh, Uh, what we got on a 30-year fixed. And because the published rates are four and a half right now, doesn't mean you can't possibly do better. And in some instances, you can. That's still pretty cheap money. It makes me a little bit more toward the 50% down plan. So the 50% finance, 50% pay, um, because you, you do have a little bit more interest there. But even that, what do you, I mean, how does that compare putting 40 grand into a mortgage that's got a tax deductible interest thing and you don't get a mortgage just for the tax deduction, but you do look at it in the totality of the financial picture. So we have an interest 
payment that's deductible from our income tax that's lower than an interest payment that's not deductible from our income tax. We can go into to, to consumer debt to improve the property, or we can use money we already have and allow mortgage financing on the property to cover the expense of the property. See, it just makes more sense. And with the income you guys have, I think that you would find with a 50% down on the house and a quick approval and a good interest rate that you could probably look at a 15-year financing option and maybe do a little bit better on the interest. Or you could have your own plan to pay the property off in about five to seven years, and you probably can do it. Maybe for the first two years that you're in the property, you put the surplus towards improvement of the property, get the infrastructure you want, and then turn your sights on, on paying down the house. Um, I think that you're, if you do that, you're in a very strong position, and here's why. Not only do you have the income and the savings to back up the mortgage, because see, if you go 50% down, you're not going to take all the rest of the money and immediately drop it into the property. You're going to put some of that money kind of away and beef up your emergency fund. So if you did have a financial stubble, if one of you did lose a job, get laid off, have something like that happen to you, you've got that reserve. You can continue to make payments on the mortgage, which are pretty low payments, and that means that that reserve would last a long time. Um, the, the money you do spend to make improvements to the property will increase the value of the property that you already have large equity in. So you have a very reasonable exit strategy. If you need to get out from under that property to do to, to any kind of an emergency or something like that, even if you lost money, you would be able to extract yourself and be cash flow positive on the extraction. Uh, and it gives you what you want. And if you right now could pay off the house in full, I'm going to think the mortgage you're looking at with a 50% down payment is pretty damn low and pretty easy for you guys to manage and handle. So I just think that that overall plan works better. I don't want to see anybody with a, with a house but no money uh, because houses cost money even without the improvements. Uh, as a homeowner, you probably know that's a newer house, but still, houses cost money. Uh, houses do uh, require upkeep and maintenance and things like that. And your wife's, if you're going to downsize, your wife's going to want nice drapes and shit like that. And that stuff adds up quick, too. I, I know from personal experience that, you know, ladies want stuff like that. And when you, you get your way to a point, they get their way back. And so I would not go in all in. I would look more at a 50% plan or a 20% plan, depending on you got to do your own budget from that point forward and say, okay, what is, what does the next five years look like if we go 20% down? And what does the next five years look like if we go 50% down? And what are our plans for infrastructure on the property? What is the cost of that? How can we phase that in? And then you make an informed decision that way, uh, not a reactionary decision. I would tell you with the cash that you have, though, don't go any less than 20% down uh, and, and get out of the PMI right away. That'll save you quite a bit of money over the years. Uh, let's take another one. Okay, this next one comes from Robert, and Robert says this might be a perfect everyday carry item, and it's um, it's a story of tactical ingenuity, uh, success of a new business. I'm kind of surprised after what we heard from David Crawford that this was fundraised for on Indiegogo, since they don't want a magazine pouch given away or a sling and a fundraising thing, but they allowed this. I'll tell you what it is in a second. Uh, but it's a story of how something bad can turn into something good as well. Let me read this to you. This is on CNN Money. Former, uh, former Army soldier Seth Frome vividly recalls when he was robbed at gunpoint in his own house in 2011 with his face to the floor and an iPhone in his hand. He watched helplessly 
as his home was ransacked. Quote, I kept thinking what I could have done to stop this, said Frome. Two years after the traumatic event, Frome and his college buddy Sean Simone have invented a solution that has a potential to make millions. An iPhone case that doubles as a 650,000-volt stun gun. Touch the device to someone and it can deliver a shock that causes significant discomfort. Those of you who've never experienced this, that's an understatement, significant discomfort. Ranging from mild to extreme pain. That has to do with how hard it's pressed against you for how long, by the way. Simone said, to prevent an accidental discharge, users first have to flip two safety switches and then press an activation button. Yellow Jacket, the company that Simone and Frome have founded, has sold thousands of cases since February through retail stores and its website. The case retails for $139.99 each, aren't sold in states where stun guns are banned, and the customers must be 18 years of older. If you live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, you can't have one. Yeah, because Philadelphia, Pennsylvania is a place where you don't need a stun gun. Anyway, the case fits the iPhone 4 and 4S models, comes in black, white, pink, and yellow. More options are coming later in the year. The roots of Simone and Frome's business partnership go back six years. The two now, both 24, met in 2007 as freshmen at Louisiana State University, where Simone was a business student and Frome was studying architecture. They soon found that they shared an entrepreneurial spirit and would often talk about starting a business in the future. His junior year, Simone launched a networking group called SENSE to help young entrepreneurs in Louisiana. By then, Frome had left college to join the Army, but friends stayed in touch. Uh, many times just to bounce business ideas off of each other. In January 2011, Frome took temporary leave from the military so him, he and Simone could try to develop an idea they had for an RFID tracker that would help people find misplaced personal items. But that business idea never got off the ground. In August, Frome was robbed in his home. He thought a lot about that day and how the robber yanked the iPhone out of his hand but left the case behind. That one detail triggered an idea. What if he could turn a smartphone case into a defensive weapon? Frome used his design background to develop the concept. Simone laughed when he first heard the idea, he said, but soon he was on board. Together, they finessed the concept and its design. They pitched the idea at a business competition at LSU the following year and won $5,500. That money went to filing a patent application for the case and preparing a marketing video. They soon needed more startup capital. They approached co-funding co site Kickstarter but were turned down, quote, because our product is a weapon, said Simone. In 2012, they took their campaign to rival Indiegogo and in 45 days reached their target, raising $100,000. I'd like to know from the Indiegogo people why this is acceptable, but a magazine pouch isn't. I really would. Um, not that I don't think you guys should have done this, but what's up with your problem with Lights Out being sponsored by 511 Tactical, etc.? Jackasses. Anyway, they found a manufacturer in China and started selling the cases earlier this year. Sales have already reached nearly a quarter million dollars. The Yellow Jacket case has a built-in charger for the iPhone. Last month, Yellow Jacket won uh, an MFI made-for-iPhone development license, essentially an Apple seal of approval for iPhone, iPad, and iPod accessories. Yellow Jacket has also had preliminary talks with Apple to identify potential new customers for the cases. They're now thinking of creating a model targeted to law enforcement. They also plan to expand behind Apple, expecting to launch new versions for Samsung's Galaxy S3 and S4 models in September. Those cases will feature a stun gun that detaches an innovation they plan to roll out, the iPhone 5 case they're developing uh, as well. The new product could push sales over $1 million by the end of the year, Simone said. Said Simone, there are so many possibilities and so much more room to grow, end quote. Hey, you know what? Let me tell you how, how cool I think this is. I just ordered one. 
I ordered one. I'm going to make sure it works the way they say it does. And once I am sure, this Mr. Simone and me are going to have a conversation. I'm going to see if I can get you guys a discount on it. I bet you I can do that for you. Um, we're not that big, but they're not that big yet either, and this would be the time to approach it. Um, there's some things about this case that, to me, make it make sense. There's a lot of iPhone cases out there that are 50 or 60 bucks, and all they do is protect the phone. Okay, this protects the phone. This is a very protective case. It'd be a good thing to have your phone in just as a case. Number two, the battery in it, while you should probably leave it charged so that you can shock the shit out of somebody should the need arise, has a little switch, and you can throw it, and it will dump its power into the phone. So it's also a battery backup case. And then there's the last little part about shocking the shit out of somebody. I like this, and I don't like this as... And I don't think people should see this as, now I'm invincible, now I'm Superman. It can be taken away from you. There are people that can be hit with these things, that can, can fight through the pain and continue to attack you. Um, it's not an end-all, be-all. But it's pretty effective, especially if you don't go, you see this? This is a stun gun, zap, 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 right? Uh, and which, you know, as loud as they are, a lot of times it does make people back the hell off, but the person that's not going to back off, it, it's probably not a better idea. But for being grabbed, attacked, whatever, to break the attack, it is a very effective tool. For it to be effective, it needs to be in your hand, because when you get attacked, you don't get to go, please, especially ladies, let me dig in my purse and find my defensive tool, okay? So it needs to be in your hand, and that means that there needs to be some discipline with its use along the lines of, there's these two safety switches, maybe those need to be deactivated when you're walking to your car in a dark parking lot, okay? Uh, this is a, probably a great product for young ladies that could become the victim of things, and I'm not saying young men don't either, but young ladies, this is probably a really good thing to have. Um, I'm not endorsing it because I haven't held one in my hands, looked at it, tried it out, and verified that it works yet. No, I will not be posting a video of me shocking myself or letting somebody else shock me. Uh, I've had that experience once. I don't need it again. As long as it goes off, I know what it does. But does it function well? Is it a good case? Is it is ergonomic? Is it easily deployable? That type of thing I'll be researching. Um, and I will try to get you guys a discount. I'm not promising, but my, my view is it's probably something we can get done. I think it makes a lot of sense. I've kept, I've been on my wife repeatedly about upgrading her phone to an iPhone. This gives me the way to push it over. As soon as you get one, I'll get you one of these and you can have this as another defensive option. Again, I want to say this again about stun guns. Stun guns do not turn you into Superman. If you hit somebody with a stun gun, they do not fall down, shit their pants and die or roll over with their eyes rolling back in their head and not be able to move for 15 minutes. You want that kind of performance? You need a taser. Right? Sticks into somebody and keep it going because as soon as you break contact, it stops working. But if you're grabbed and you, ladies, you reach around with one of those, put it in somebody's kidneys and just hold and just keep doing it, they will let go. I promise you. I promise you at some point they'll let go. Shoulder shots are very good. You know, it, it, it kind of throws an arm off real quick. So this is a tool like any other tool that you would have to train for proper deployment. It doesn't beat a firearm, but it may be more accessible. And the one thing that you can say about most people in this day and age, that wherever they go, their phone is with them. And that way, it's not an extra piece. It doesn't get lost. It serves multiple functions. I like it. I like the drive and business initiative that these two guys have uh, taken, taken and what they've done with it. And I like the press they've gotten so far on it. And uh, I'll let you guys know how it works out when I get one. But no, I'm not going to post a video of myself being shocked with the 
with a, uh, a stun gun. Uh, I did shock myself with a stun gun to see how it worked. Uh, when they first became in vogue, I was probably 19 years old and in the Army and thought I was invincible, and I didn't believe it would go through leather. So I took a leather coat, and I put the sleeve across my thigh sitting in a chair. So there were two layers of leather, and I stuck it up on my leg, and I pushed it, and I went down out of the chair onto the floor and uh, said the F word about 16 times and then never had to do it again to have an appreciation. I will say this, though. There's probably no time that it's more effective on a person than the first time that it's used on a person. And I have seen people build some pretty impressive tolerances to these things. So again, it's not a sledgehammer that wins all. It's not the hammer of Thor. But it is another defensive option. And the more options and tools we have, the more likely we are to survive a bad situation. So overall, I like the idea. And again, I'll let you know how it works out. Okay, um, I mentioned that I would cover this earlier uh, about when I was talking about mortgage rates going up and, and some of this stuff with the economy beginning to not look so rosy um, and some real problems coming to a head out of Europe. Uh, let me read this to you. This is on Fox Business. The European Union sought on Friday to forge rules to force losses on large savers when banks fail, a decisive reform that will shape how the Eurozone deals with its sickly lenders. Finance ministers in Luxembourg are trying to resolve one of the most difficult questions posed by the European bank crisis. How to shut down failed banks without sowing panic or burgeoning taxpayers. We are in a very tough negotiation, Sweden's, Sweden's finance minister, uh, Andres Borg, told reporters when he arrived for a meeting, saying a one-size-fits-all rule for EU countries was dangerous. The European Union spent the equivalent of a third of its economic output on saving its banks between 2008 and 2011. Plundering taxpayer cash but struggling to contain the crisis and, in the case of Ireland, almost bankrupting the country. But countries are divided over how strict the new rules should be, with some worried that imposing losses on depositors could prompt a bank run, while others argue the rules of the game must be made clear from the start. While there's no immediate deadline for a deal, dithering could undermine confidence in the ability of Europe's politicians to repair the financial system, encourage banks to lend again, and help the continent emerge from its economic stagnation. Quote, Midsummer is the longest day of the year, so we have plenty of time, said Oli Wren, the European Commission's top economics official, referring to the Northern Hemisphere's June 21st summer solstice. On a 300-page draft EU law that forms the basis of discussions, recommends a pecking order in which first bank shareholders would take losses, then bondholders, and finally depositors with more than 100,000 euros in their account. This would make the harsh treatment of savers that was part of Cyprus bailout in March a permanent feature of Europe's response to future banking crisis. EU countries would be required to follow these rules when closing banks. So this is what they're basically saying would happen. So if you are a depositor at a bank and you have a hundred, more than $100,000, you could lose, the way I read this, all of your money. What? How does that work? I thought they had like the equivalent of FBI, FDIC over there, but up to 100,000 euros. Yeah, but if you're a large depositor, it doesn't necessarily say here that you would only lose the portion above the 100K. Otherwise, there would be no reason to do this because that's already would be the way that it is. So let's say you're sitting with 200,000 euros in the, the first bank of socialist Sweden, and uh, it's come on hard times and it's going to go under. 
Well, the first thing that the bank would do is not pay its shareholders and basically dissolve their stock, so their stock would become worthless. That's typical of a bankruptcy anyway, and, and so the shareholders would lose first. Well, that's not really anything new. That's how any corporation works, unless they get bailed out. Okay, uh, Then the bondholders would lose. So the people that had a bond, so people that had lent the bank money in, a, in the form of a bond, Right, uh, bought a bank bond would would lose next, and if that wasn't enough to close the doors and give everybody their money back, then everybody with more than a hundred thousand dollars in the bank would be subject to having their funds taken and given to everybody else that has less than a hundred thousand dollars to help cover the expense of the bank closing, so you don't bankrupt their equivalent of the FDIC. So st steal from the rich and give to the poor. Robin Hood at the banking level. That's what this is. Now, this is exactly what happened in Cyprus eventually, even though the initial plan was to screw everybody with a banking tax, right? Then eventually they, they went and did something more like this. This shows the blueprint. This is the blueprint. When everything starts to fall apart, the people with a certain amount of money in the bank just lose it. And it won't work forever this is this first see you always screw the rich people first right by screwing the rich people first you get the middle class and the the the, the people below the poverty line on board so the upper middle class even goes yeah you know why do you have a hundred grand in one bank anyway you know what i mean and, and and you just like so then you set the precedent that it can be done well then after they've come for theirs then they come for yours Right? Then they start saying, well, you know, people with a hundred grand in the bank, they're doing okay right now. So we'll go with the original Cyprus plan and they'll lose seven percent. We'll call it a, an interim wealth tax. And then the people that are like, well, you know, they're not taking money for people with only fifty thousand dollars in the bank. And I don't know that I'll ever have that much. And sooner or later, it ends up with the loss being spread across the board. And people start losing more and more and more of what they have. Because eventually, if the bank's broke, you can't take the money. Because, see, this is what people don't get. By the time you're doing this, the bank is like an infinite money hole anyway. There's not The money's gone now. The money's in the hands of borrowers who are failing to repay the bank. That's how it's disappeared. That's where it's gone. The, the bank has made bad bets with its depositors' money. And only so much of what went out is coming back in. And this will trigger bank runs. If I had money in a European bank right now, I would be taking it out, period. Now, it's probably a, a bigger sticky wicket, as the British say, over there to withdraw $50,000 in cash from the bank than it is over here, which we've already talked about how they're like, well, why do you want this money? Well, because I don't want it in your bank anymore. Well, why don't you want to check and put it in another bank? Because I don't want it that. I want it in cash. And then they file a suspicious activity report with the government that says you take the money out. Even though it's your own damn money, you should be able to do whatever you want with it. Well, what are you doing with that money? I'm going to put it up my ass. What do you care? It's none of your damn business. Right? Oh, that's right. We live in a surveillance state now, and they need to know because you might be, I don't know, funding Al-Qaeda in your basement with your See, this is the crap, and this is the way this all starts to spin together. And all these little things... That you're like, oh, that's no big deal. Oh, that's no big deal. Oh, that's, you see, it all starts to mesh together and then it starts to pull the fabric of freedom of a nation apart. That's what's happening right now. How about this one? Do you know that we're on the verge of having a national ID card right now? They're going to vote on it today in the Senate. I got an email from Ron Paul about it. 
Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't really look like that. It doesn't really look like that. You're not going to have to go get one. You're not going to have to go get a, a national ID card. You're going to have one. Essentially, what's going to happen is part of immigration reform. You know, all those guys, all you guys say, we got to do something about this. We got to, here's what's going to happen. If they get this done and it looks like they're going to, All the state driver's licenses will go into a national database bureau. And essentially, your Texas or South Carolina or Florida driver's license will become a national ID card with oversight and control and being able to say, yeah, I can't do that. Yeah, you can do that. Yeah, you can do that. No, you can't do that by the federal government. So they've always wanted a national ID card. They've always wanted a citizen of the United States of America identification card. They've always wanted one, but they can't do that because people are resistant to it. So inside the immigration bill, you tell all of the people that say we got to do something about these employers hiring these illegal aliens that this is the solution. By putting this into a federal database... Uh, and everybody's ID being part of the federal database and it being checked for legal status in the country, we can then say to employers, you can use this database to verify employment, and the government would never abuse a database like that, would they? Would they? The government that reads your Facebook frickin' posts that says they're going to be able to find a terror attack because they read a Facebook? Because terrorists do post to Facebook before they blow shit up, don't they? Terrorists do put on Twitter... You know, building pipe bomb in basement now, right? That's what terrorists do, right? Okay, so your government is selling you a bill of goods that we need comprehensive immigration reform, and they're not going to do a damn thing to reform immigration. What they're going to do is they're going to use it as yet another way to create another database for more control, oversight, and uh, uh, supervision of you as a citizen of your nation. See, this is what's wrong right now, folks. We are in a position where instead of us watching the government, the government's watching us. We've got it backwards now. Okay? It's time, we, it's time to flip this around. Somebody posted in the forum, not the forum, a blog comment, uh, when I was talking about the surveillance state and the things that were going on. And, uh, said, you know, you can't be afraid of this crap anymore. You just gotta stand up and just be who you are. And I said, you know, That's all good and well until it goes to shit and they use this against us. And he's like, no, I understand that. I'm just saying, there's, at this point, we, there is no other choice. And he's like, if you want an answer, look at the back of a TSP ant silver coin. You'll see a picture on there of an ant. Not just an ant, but a fire ant. You have to be like the fire ant now. A fire ant will build its home with no concern and complete disregard for anything and anyone that it... That it It inconveniences. It'll build it in your front doorstep. It'll build it in your garden. It'll build it in the tall grass where you... It just builds it wherever the hell it wants to. And it's like, that's what we're going to do. We're going to build our house here. And they just pretty much go about their daily business and don't bother anybody unless someone screws with their house. And if you screw with their house, if you walk in it, if you screw up and lay your knee in it, or you know, you've got your, you know, you're walking and your flip-flops in it, then they light your ass up. They just go ape shit and they light you up And then they just start fixing their house. And that's sort of how we have to start living now. Complete disregard. Told just, you know what? You're not telling us what to do anymore. We're just going to do it. And then when they try to prevent it, we have to, as voters, as citizens, and in any way we can legally light their asses up. But there's not enough of us yet that have gone from grasshopper to ant. 
And this is kind of a new way to see that analogy, isn't it? What does a grasshopper do when you disturb it? Right? Let's forget about the, the storing of the food and the Aesop fable and all. Let's take a new look at the ant and the grasshopper today. If you disturb a grasshopper, it hops away, flies away, runs away. And a lot of times, if you're walking through a field and you're disturbing grasshoppers, if you're walking along with chickens or turkeys, as they run away from you, they run smack into the beak of a chicken or a turkey that eats their ass. In their panic and fear to get away from one person, they end up consumed by another. They end up in being hit by the windshield of a car, right? A grasshopper flees when aggressed upon. An ant fights back. An ant's like, you know what, screw this, right? Let's go, guys. Let's get it together. Attack. And they attack the shit out of the threat. And everybody that survives, as soon as the threat's over, they're running around. Who else do I bite? Who else do I sting? Where is it? Where's the threat? Okay, wait a minute. Let's send the pheromones out. It's over. It looks, look, looks, okay. Okay, what happened? All right, let's start putting shit back together. That needs to be the American people. But no, the American people are a bunch of damn grasshoppers running and cowering from their government, being supervised and watched by their government. I say it's time that we start watching them and we start letting them know they're being watched. We said, you know what? You're not going to do this. You're not going to do that. We're not going to have you be doing this anymore. And this is starting to show up at the state level. I keep talking about state nullification. Folks, it's not going away. It's not just a pipe dream. It's real. In fact, you know what? On this uh, this national ID thing, what I want to do right now, I want to actually play a video for you of Ron Paul back in May explaining that this was the plan and this is what they're trying to do. And again, uh, this is one of those times where if you're the kind of person that calls your senator, this is a good day to do it because these ass clowns are going to vote on this today, at least according to the email that I got from Ron today. Uh, but here you go, Ron Paul explaining the latest way uh, to scam the American people into giving up their liberty and giving the federal government more power and instead of issuing a national ID card, just to convert the card you're already carrying into one. It's by far the worst national ID scheme the status have come up with yet. They're still hiding their true intentions, but in the wake of recent events, the status believe they have the perfect excuse to ratchet up their attacks on our remaining liberties. Right now, the so-called Gang of Eight in the United States Senate, including Senators John McCain, Lindsey Graham, and Chuck Schumer, are working with President Obama to sneak this massive national ID card power grab into a new immigration reform law that's being used as a cover for all sorts of status madness. Hello, this is Dr. Ron Paul, Chairman of Campaign for Liberty, with an urgent message. I hardly know where to begin. The 844-page so-called immigration reform monstrosity is a status dream. Not only does this bill increase federal spending, it mandates every American carry a national ID card with their photo and creates a new federal database containing biometric information on every American, such as fingerprints and retinal scans. The card would be required for all U.S. workers regardless of place of birth, making it illegal for anyone to hold a job in the United States who doesn't attain an ID card. All employers would be required to purchase an ID scanner to verify the ID cards by making sure the information on the card matches the information in the federal database. So every time any citizen applies for a job, the government would know, and you can bet it's only a matter of time until ID scans will be required to travel, attend public events, or even make routine purchases as well. Of course, the most dangerous part is the biometric tracking technology, which would allow federal bureaucrats to track our every move. This is exactly the type of battle that often decides whether a country remains free or continues down a slide toward tyranny. 
Once government bureaucrats know exactly how we live our lives, it won't be long until they ramp up their efforts to run them. It will only be a matter of time until they spend their work days making sure you and I don't go anywhere, read anything, eat anything, or drink anything they think we shouldn't. Once that door opens, how long will it be for the state to start telling us what we can teach our children or where we can go to church? But while most Americans get caught up with the talk of amnesty, paths to citizenship, and other hot-button political buzzwords, these are simply being used as a cover by the status in both parties who want to conceal the real threat. But he's just a crazy old man, right? Doesn't know what he's talking about. He's always an alarmist. He, he never gets it. Wait a minute. He got it right all the way back. All the way back to the 70s and 80s. Dr. Ron Paul has been telling us that the government was doing these things. We were warned by Dr. Ron Paul as early as 1983 about the coming police state and about the surveillance activities of Americans that we can see today in the NSA scandal. We now see the people that claim to love liberty in both parties calling for the extradition and prosecution of the NSA whistleblower who to me is not a traitor but a hero. He didn't tell us what the government was doing specifically in any way that compromised our security the way that they're trying to make it. No, no, no. He just told us what they were doing to us. And all of a sudden, there's bipartisan support for this guy's head. And there's a difference between the D and the R, folks. You've got to support one or the other because the world will end if the other party takes over. There's some differences in some events and some things. But recent things like this push for national identification, recent things like the unification behind going after a guy who told the truth to the American people about what's being done should tell you in the end there's not much difference. It's a false dichotomy. Pepsi or Coke, gold or silver, A or B, MasterCard or Visa, The choices are yours, the choices are endless, but in the end, the choices are the same. If you choose Coke or Pepsi, you might get a little bit of a different taste in your mouth, but in the end, you're drinking shit full of high fructose corn syrup and atrazine. That's what you're really getting. And that could, there could not be a better explanation for the people that are currently running our country than that. That is the perfect analogy. You know, you can drink the Coke or you can drink the Pepsi, but in the end, you're getting shit. You can vote for the D, you can vote for the R, but in the end, you're getting it in the butt. That's what these people are doing to us. And they're doing it right now. And we're not even paying attention. It's time to light them up, man. It really is. Um, the good news. I don't think this will make it through the House. Not this way. I don't think we can stop it in the Senate today. I think the Senate's going to pass this crap. Um, and I think they're going to... Here's the thing. I think that they're going to convince the general sheeple, that this is good for them. This is what you've always asked for. You've asked us how we're going to ensure that we enforce immigration law after we do this deal. Well, this is the only way we can do it. You want us to make sure that employers don't hire illegals? We need a way that we can do that. We need to be able to have an employer verify their citizenship. Um, It's called a birth certificate. I know it took the president an awful long time to find his... But most people can come up with one. It's called a birth certificate and an ID card and a social security card, right? We already have a database of everybody in America that would want to work in America. It's called social security numbers. 
That's too far as far, but it's already there. Don't give me this crap that they can't hold employers accountable for not hiring illegals without a national ID database that links biometrically to your ID card. Because, see, this is the next step. This is what Dr. Paul was talking about. They want these cards to be something that can't be counterfeited. So they want biometrics included in the card. They want an RFID tag. They want to force the state of Texas, the state of Florida, the state of Virginia to put a chip in your ID card. Okay? And that means wherever you go, that little RFID chip can skip off a scanner and tell people where you went. And you think, I know. I'll get smart. I'll get one of those little bitty um, sleeves, those little metal sleeves, and I'll stick it in there so it, it shields And I'll tell you what, if they ever do this, that's one smart thing to do. But what's next? Next they'll start saying, well, you know, we want to make sure that everybody going to the airport belongs there, so I'll scan it every time you go to the airport. So now we know every time you got on a plane where you were going. Every time you apply for a job, beep, it'll go through. They're going to require the employers to buy a scanner to scan your card with. That's the provision here. So that way they can tell the employer, you can't possibly say you didn't know because when you scanned it, it's so now they know that you even were, that they even talked to you. What's after that? Pfft, trains. When you get on a train, scan your card, prove you belong on a train because we don't want you blowing it up. You know, <laughs> you, you you think this can't happen. You think this can't happen, but it can. It's happening right in front of us right now. It's happening right in front of us right now. And I'll have an easy solution for you. Because the only way to get this into fire ant mode is to wake up about 50 million Americans. That's what we have to do. 50, 55 million of us. Every gun owner in America that's represented on that Sentinel coin should be waked the hell up by now, but they're not. They're sleeping, they're slumbering while we spin toward tyranny. So in the interim, my friends, build liberty in your individual life. Create freedom and self-sufficiency in your individual life. Take the systems of support that you depend on for your six primary survival needs, stop buying them a la carte, and systemize them in a way where they're provided for you versus you having to acquire them on a weekly or daily or monthly basis. This is the only way forward right now until more people wake up. And you can shout it from the rooftops, but the reality is most of the damn grasshoppers are not ready to become ants yet. They're not. They haven't been stepped on enough. They haven't felt the boot on their throat enough. And the only thing we can hope for is that they feel it before they're trampled out and it's too late. And I can't promise you that's not going to happen. I can't promise you that this nation won't rise into the greatest police state that's ever existed. All I can tell you is as long as there's more of us than there are of them, and that's the only way a country works, there's always the opportunity to dismantle it. There's always the opportunity to tear it apart. There's always an opportunity to restore liberty. But the only people that can be warriors and fight for that liberty have to have security in their own lives. They have to have security for their families. They have to have security for their food, for their shelter, for their energy. They have to feel that I don't need you. You have to feel I don't need you. I don't want you. Otherwise, you'll make the deal. And that's how they plan on holding on to this power that they're incrementally acquiring. Get enough people scared shitless of freedom that they'll stay in the cage voluntarily. You know, there's an analogy here with my geese. I just put out a video where I moved them into this 16 by 16 uh, moving fence system that I, I put together. 
they spent the first four and a half weeks of their life in a little tractor, about three foot, four foot wide, somewhere about three and a half feet wide by seven and a half feet long. They'd gone to the point where I decided they needed to come out of there because they were too big for it. I was having to move them four or five times a day to keep them fed. When I took one out, he was upset at being picked up, which is typical, and I pet him and I talked to him, and he calmed down the way that they do, and then I put him down inside this much bigger cage. It wasn't even not a cage, it was just a bigger cage, and he freaked out. It was too much freedom too fast. I had to get his buddies with him, right? When they all got together in a group again, they felt okay with their new status of captivity. And if I go out there right now and take the fence down, The first time they're experiencing a environment where they have an acre or two of captivity versus 16 by 16 feet, 256 square feet, they'll probably freak out again and adapt to that. But they're geese. They have an excuse. And you know what? The thing about geese is they, they really quickly adapt to that new freedom. They don't fear it for very long. The human, on the other hand, that is fed by his government and milked like a cow and seems to almost enjoy giving blood to the IRS and milk to the federal government, really fears additional liberty. That's what they've done. You think that the real power of this state is to make the citizen fear the state? No. The real power in a state is to make the citizen fear liberty. What would happen if... We let gay people get married. The world would end. Dogs and cats would live together. The houses would fall down. No, nothing would happen. I know that a lot of you are opposed to that, but you can be opposed to something without enforcing it with a law. Okay? What would happen if we got rid of most welfare and only took people who really couldn't work, who really had a, absolutely a physical impediment or a mental impediment to being able to do anything constructive, and we everybody would starve? No, they would get off their ass and work. What if there wasn't a homeowners association to drive around with blue hair old ladies telling people their grass is too long? The whole place would melt down, but yet there's neighborhoods without HOAs that don't look like, you know, a trash hole. What if? What if this? What if that? What if, what if there was no social security? Well, maybe people would save for their retirement if there was no social security that just guaranteed you a retirement. Maybe the country wouldn't be broke. Maybe we wouldn't have $150 trillion of all. No, but that's not how the sheep will think. The sheep will think what evil, horrible things would become of us without these things to protect us. You're more likely to be eaten by a shark if you swim in the ocean ten times this year than to be blown up by a terrorist, but we'll give away our sovereignty to protect us from the terrorist. Do you understand what causes this to happen? It's not people that fear their government. It's people that fear the absence of their government that empower a tyrannical state. Has anybody ever explained it to you that way before? I bet there's a lot of people out there right now going, wow, I never really understood the power of tyranny and the source of tyranny's power. The source of tyranny's power is the fear of liberty. What liberty would mean? What if everybody just did what they wanted? Wouldn't that be terrible? 
That's actually the mentality that's been beaten into your skull since the time you were knee-high to a grasshopper and went to your first kindergarten class. Without rules, the world would be chaos. Sit in your chair. Stay there for eight hours a day. And if you don't, we'll give you a little pill to help you be able to do it, Johnny. And what a terrible world we would live in if little Johnnies ran around and played in the dirt and didn't focus on learning how to read when they were five years old. Because, gee, you know what? They can start to learn about things that they're interested in at that point, and there's plenty of time left to learn how to read. But no, because the state says the time that you need to start formal education is five years old. Because the state says so. Think about that. The reason your child is put behind a desk for multiple hours a day, subjected to a very constrained system, and medicated if they don't conform is because the state said five years was the age that this needed to start. What if people had their kids start formal schooling at seven? <gasps> no, the world would end, and it did. It wouldn't. Do you remember, do you remember just 25-ish years ago when the speed limit in most of the country was 55? And they started talking about racing it to 65, 70, higher in some places. Everybody was going to die. Well, they did, and not everybody died. There's not really much more in the way of highway deaths today than there was at any time when you look at it per capita. It didn't do anything. The insurance company said, oh, this will just be horrible. The government said, oh, no. But states decided at certain points to do it on their own. And the federal government fought it the entire time. You know how they fought it? They told states, if you raise it past our federally mandated maximums, we will not give you your highway funds. And some states just did it anyway, eventually. And they got their highway funds because the state basically said, well, maybe we won't send you our tax dollars. See, the states have power. Because the people form the states, and the people have the power. This is what you've forgotten. And you don't have to have ever learned it to have forgotten, because in your heart, in your soul, in your very humanity, these things are intrinsic to what you are. That liberty is a right by your existence, by your creation, that you are indoctrinated, empowered with liberty from the very moment that you existed. And there was a benevolent captivity necessary for you to be able to rise up and use that liberty. And what is that benevolent captivity? The captivity of your parents. You were born into captivity, but you were optimized and meant for liberty. Okay? And this is what I mean. Imagine a newborn baby. Go set it free in a field. What will happen to it? It will die. We put it in a crib so that it doesn't roll over and fall and hurt itself. We childproof the home. We lock windows. We lock cabinets. We keep it from doing certain things that it's not supposed to do. We have to change its diaper, for God's sake, for a while. If we left it free, it would crap everywhere and create disease. So even before we had conventional diapers, we had ways to deal with that as a species. Eventually that child begins to grow and we begin to remove restrictions. And hopefully by the time that child is old enough to be responsible for themselves, there are no more restrictions and a parent is now a guide versus an overseer. Government has sold you on the need for benevolent captivity in a totally different way. With a belief that you never mature enough to get out of their benevolent captivity. 
that you must always remain in the benevolent captivity of your master. In fact, the very things they claim that are to make sure that you don't need help make you dependent. Because we go from being highly captive by the state in a school system as children to somewhat captive as a taxpayer and eventually as a senior citizen to being captive to playing by their rules so that we'll get our Medicaid or our Medicare and our Social Security. And then we have to vote for the people that promise not to do anything to it or we'll lose the only thing we have. The entire system is a trap. The entire system is a snare. And the harder you fight it and the harder you pull, the tighter it grips around you. So what you do is you stop fighting with a direct retreat. You stop fearing what if. And you start asking yourself what if. You start asking yourself, what if I just say no? What if I just say I'm not doing this anymore? What if I just say this is my new path and I'm going to walk it and that come hell or high water, I'm responsible as a sovereign human being for myself and my family. What if I just say, you know what, maybe I won't always do business in cash and checks and credit cards anymore. Maybe sometimes I'll do business in barter and they can very well try to track that if they really, really want to. What if I just say no, I won't vote for the D or the R anymore and maybe even the L. Maybe I just won't vote at all. Maybe I will use the weapon of apathy in the words of Rob Gray. And then I'll turn my focus when I know I have the ability to do something. But I'm not going to go vote in an election where I don't want either ca candidate. And I already know one's going to win by 80% of the vote because the people are that brainwashed. I'm just not going to put my energy there. There's a referendum on the ballot that actually has a chance of winning and I think it's good. Maybe I'll go vote for that. Or maybe I'll vote in every election. I'll do whatever I want, but I won't do it because I'm afraid. I'll do it because it's what I choose. Maybe I won't just turn the TV on and listen to whatever a group of suit-and-tie-wearing Harvard graduate assholes decided would increase the ratings that night. Maybe I'll turn on a podcast and listen to a crazy redneck from Texas tell me there's a better way. Maybe I'll listen to other sources. Maybe I'll ask my own questions. Maybe I'll determine what I want to know, and I'll go gain that information versus being told what I'm supposed to know. Maybe I'll question everything. Maybe I won't conform to the state that says my student, my child must become a student of the state at five years of age. Maybe I'll just say hell no. Maybe I'll take responsibility for their education myself. Or maybe I'll work with other parents to set that up. And we all revolt in different ways. The important thing is we all must revolt. Whether we do it with apathy or whether we attack. Whether we build our home with wanton disregard, like the fire ant, or whether we go like the army ant and march. It doesn't matter as long as we revolt. And we don't revolt by asking for a new law with a new restriction. We revolt through the dismantling, and in some cases, the ignoring of their requirements for us. Or we revolt through the state houses. And we, we pass these state sovereignty laws and say, your shit doesn't apply here. And we wait. We wait for the first day that a sheriff has the guts to grab some federal thugs and throw them in the county jail and say, you don't get to do that here. And we see what happens. And we back that guy. You don't ask for permission to plant a garden. You plant a garden and defend your garden. 
You don't ask for permission to have a chicken. You get a chicken, you call it a pet, and you say, I dare you to take my chicken. And we won't win every flight like that. We won't. But damn it, we can fight. Do you hear me? Do you understand me? Does this resonate with you? Do you understand that being in the fight is the only way to be free at this point? I won't tell you where to fight, how to fight, what battles to pick. That's not my place. If I did, all you would have is a new person overseeing you. I'm telling you to pick what you want and believe what you want and gain the knowledge that you choose and take that and ram it up the ass of the state in any way you see fit at every single opportunity. And I'm telling you to do it legally and peacefully, but freaking repetitively, non-stop, till they feel like they're being stung by 10 million fire ants. Holy shit, these people don't want us anymore. Holy shit, these people are pissed. Holy shit, they know. Holy shit, they know there's more of us than there are of them. Holy shit, they know they created us. Holy shit, they know they fund us. Holy shit, if they really figure this out, if they're really sick of us, all they all have to do is just sit down and do nothing for a week, and we're done. We're sunk. We can't have our Cush congressional retirement without their tax dollars, and they don't pay taxes unless they work. And if they don't work for a week, boy, that puts a big dimple in the damn U.S. economy, doesn't it? But what if it happened? Oh, my God, it would be terrible. Not if you're prepared. And I'm not saying that's the way. It's a lot like a nuclear bomb. The nation with a nuclear arsenal doesn't have to launch a single missile. They just have to say, it's on the table. And maybe it's time for our government to know what's on the table from the American people. Maybe it's time for them to realize that people in Texas are tired of being told by people in Washington how to live. And people in Florida feel the same way. And even people in California feel that way. For all the liberty taking in California, there's been reclamation of other liberties. And maybe it's time for this republic to start acting like a republic instead of a giant super state. And maybe that's the solution. And I don't know. But I do know the only way we start on the path toward a solution is to fight at every level, all the time, with wanted disregard for who it pisses off. In fact, in some instances, when somebody's pissed, you know you're doing the right thing. And if you can just get more people to be happy about what you're doing than pissed about what you're doing, we can call that progress. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
Revolution.